podcast uh i i guess we still don't have a name what i was going for furries get bread pilled but what do you guys think about a name for the podcast just so we can have something official how about just take the bread pill take the bread pill furries take the bread pill furries take the bread pill that sounds good i I feel like first instinct is a is a good uh way to settle on a good name you know yeah agreed agreed all right so uh today we're talking about chapter three and four of kropotkin and uh, if you all want to introduce yourself before we get into it. Sure. I guess I'll go first again. Um, so, just a reminder, uh, I am Feilong the Gecko. Um, I am a synthesis slash united anarchist, and theory is my bread and butter. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, I guess I'll go. I'm Cardin the Shark Fox, and also bit of an Ancom. Um, no gods, no masters in the streets. Shark in the streets, uh, fox in the sheets, if you will. No, fox, fox in the streets, shark in the sheets. What about shark fox in the sheets and shark fox in the streets? Sounds about right. I do All bite right. a little. <laughs> All right, uh, I'm Zulakath, the dragon, and just some kind of anarchist. Don't really worry about the sub labels too much. I thought you were an egoist. Yeah, I mean that's part of it, but that's not like it totalizing ideology or anything well none of this is it's it's all very ideology is fluid you see if you want we follow strict ideology usually things don't end up well ideology but, uh, is the trash can from which we eat exactly and we are furries so we are trash so we have an opossum here i, I wasn't aware we had a possum here well we're we're we're, 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 we're memeing like obviously like i know i said we should probably play up the Murray purry furry shit, but like not this much damn. <laughs> well, I mean, we gotta differentiate ourselves. We got a lot of anarchists on the internet. We got a lot of furries on the internet. We gotta, we gotta express ourselves and 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 become something a synthesis, if you will, of anarcho furryism. We need some possums to eat out of trash cans. That's what we need. We need we need more dog dick. What are you talking about? We do need a poss. Oh, what the <laughs> fuck? I know a possum. We can probably get on here. That was, that was Same. Cool. Actually, I might know a Pine Martin would be good for this podcast. All right. Uh, so for me, you guys all know me. I'm Confite. I'm on Twitter, YouTube. Uh, got another podcast, Sigmarxism, and this is the one uh, uh, I'm producing and helping to host. So, uh, all right. We did last week, we covered chapters one and two of the Conquest of Bread, and now we're going into chapter three, which is uh, Anarchist Communism. So I I want to point out that the first thing that I that I brought that I noticed is like the first two lines of anarchist communism like popped out at me, especially you know the fact that he he was the first he was one of the first to be like so anarchy leads to communism and to com- and communism leads to anarchy, you know they kind of just both become each other. And what, 
Like I think I, I think that actually even goes that that solidifies the idea of what communism used to mean with the stateless, classless, moneyless, moneyless society, with an emphasis on the stateless. Yeah, it's it's like the end point of classical Marxism is the communist society, and what kind of um, Khrushchev especially was like, oh yeah, uh, usually like the colloquial definition that we get for communism nowadays comes from the fact that Khrushchev, after post-Stalin uh, Soviet Union, was basically said, you know, we're kind of uh, in communism right now. We're trying to dis- dismantle the state. Of course, he didn't do that, and it, it was very, still very authoritarian. So that's where that conflation comes in. It's almost like authoritarian communism doesn't work, but have we really tried anarcho-communism? Well, every single time we have a revolution, the anarchists just get stomped afterwards by the... Uh, by the authoritarians. It's literally every t- It happened with the Cubans, happened in Spain, happened in Russia, happened pretty much everywhere, so... Pretty sure we did that in America, too. Well, I also want to point out that, you know, the classical definition of communism, the, the entire society has to be communist for it to actually be communism. Otherwise, you're just some kind of state socialism or some kind of anarcho-socialism. And that's kind of why I tend to roll a little bit more towards socialism, because... To a certain point, it's easier to uh, guarantee that it will happen. Yeah. yeah. And also, I don't want the uh, government getting between me and, um, you know, falling. I mean, for, for, for my opinion, I just think, like, um, I'm almost, like, more akin to, like, an SR in the Soviet tradition of, I believe the best way to get rid of the state is through actually co-opting the state. So I'm, like, I want... I think the best way to do it is you basically get yourself elected into policy and then you dismantle the state through uh, rapid uh, reform well, very very quickly. Well, and I would, sense, I would like to actually point out that that's actually antagonistic to what Kropotkin was actually saying because he's basically saying that, at least in the last chapter, you know, you can't really, you can't really go through the state and reach anarchy because eventually, uh-huh. you know, you just have more state well the trouble with that sort of thing and this it's interesting to look at some of these uh earlier anarchists and communists and they predict things being oh so bad and it sounds really awful when you read them and then you step outside and he's like oh it's worse (laughs) like god damn i would love to live in the apocalypse that marx predicted in uh the communist manifesto like he's like yeah it's gonna suck when we have this i was like oh man that would be an improvement also um going on like further in the chapter one of the things that i think is almost a little bit that i disagree with kropotkin not just on um the use of the state because i I disagree with him on on that a little bit because i don't think that generally when you have revolutions it's easy for the state to just go in and basically use, um, especially nowadays, just counterinsurgency efforts to really destroy you by just doing scorched earth and killing everyone, and it just leads to a lot of bloodshed. So that's not the best way to deal with the state, in my opinion. But he also kind of says, he talks about how um, communism is inevitable. And for me, I think this kind of reminds me of i don't know if you guys have ever heard of uh fukuyama and his idea of the end of history where it's like oh in the 90s they were just like ah 
liberal democracy is everywhere. The Soviet Union has fallen. Socialism has failed. We're at the end of history. It's capitalism's inevitable, and this all is inevitable. And I think that thinking that communism is inevitable is dangerous in order to actually achieving it, because in order to achieve a communist system, you need to have that upkeep and that um, to be vigilant, because people can still use the system to try to recreate, recreate a state or recreate um, some kind of class consciousness. Or not even class consciousness, but just like a repressive class society. Yeah, and I would also like to point out that, that when uh, people the, say that I would also like to point out, like specific, the specific phrasing is that that Kropotkin uses about uh, communism being inevitable. He he's saying that he specifically is saying that any society founded on quote on quote unquote individualism is inevitably inevitably impelled in the direction of communism. And I I kind of want to have a, like a little discussion about what it means to be an individualist society, and maybe even maybe even Zuli as you know someone who kind of dove a little bit into the egoist idea ideology maybe have like a discussion on what it means to be an individualist or at least uh, on the personal and the societal level i mean it's individualism is used in a lot of different ways in different contexts so i haven't figured out fully what kropotkin means by individualism um i'm just kind of going on like okay i've narrowed down to half of what people have ever meant by individualism right now um because, I mean, in my, my understanding is individualism and collectivism aren't actually opposites properly and aren't even always antagonistic to each other. So when he says individualism, I don't know exactly what he means by it because there's a large range of things where, yes, it, it can have that tendency. Um, well, the big issue is that the idea that all of these ideas are inherently antagonistic or um, mutually exclusive feels like more of a modern thing where we just we can't hold two ideas in our heads without them being literally the same idea otherwise we're contradicting ourselves yeah it's it's a polarization of political discourse where it's i think also like the idea that ideologies usually are 100% internally consistent. Like, no ideology is 100% internally consistent. That's why we have these discussions. That's why we talk about theory and stuff like that, is because they're fluid and they change from person to person and different people have different rationale for believing why they believe. And it's almost like, um, it, weirdly, in the a more kind of a scientific context, like the Heisenberg Principle, where it's like, oh, you can have two things at different places at the same time, but they're in the same place as well, if that makes any sense, where it's like almost, you have two separate ideas, but you can perform a synthesis. And yeah, I mean, like, the synthesis is not, um, it's not intuitive, and so you can't always think of things intuitively, but you actually have to, like, really dig into ideas. Yeah, this is why this is why people like Ben Shapiro like never get it because it's always you know facts and logic, but they don't realize that the facts can be manipulated. Uh, any good lawyer, like I think I've said this on a podcast before, but well, Ben Shapiro lawyer, knows full well facts can be manipulated. I mean, well, he does it all the time. Yeah, he's he's like, just that's being an unmanipulable fact right there is that he manipulates facts. Hell, that whole statement is manipulative because he only presents the facts that have his argument. 
Well, in them. Yeah. Well, it, but Cherry it's, picking it's, is big. It's not just Ben Shapiro. This is kind of like a, a whole conservative slash rightist thing to do. And I kind of had a discussion about this in one of the chat rooms earlier. That like, it, it's not necessarily today, a, a lying about the facts. It's a misrepresentation of what the facts are in the context. Right. It, it's it's looking at a graph of uh, of melting ice or the the. The mass of a of an iceberg and being like, look at this, look at this one small two month sample. Hey, look, it actually gained as much ice as it did two months prior, as it lost two months oh, prior. Oh yeah, so I've seen that uh, H bomber guy video. Yeah, yeah. And and, it, and it's <laughs> like, if you zoom out, you, you and you look at the last ten years, you see a a trend going down, and it's kind of like this this narrative that they want to present that they want to focus on that small single detail. They want to be like, well. You know we're we're have, we're the greatest society right now because I have a MacBook and I can buy McDonald's without realizing that we have this whole system of wealth inequality and oppress oppressive forces that are driving people to poverty despite you know having the super rich. It's the commodity fetishism where you only see the product and you only see what is produced. You don't see the workers or what goes into it. Or anything like that. Honestly, though, if we're if, like to be perfectly blunt, McDonald's itself is probably an argument against capitalism because gross. <laughs> oh man, I remember I was arguing with um, I don't know if you guys who know who JF Greppy is. I was for whatever reason I decided to fucking hurt myself and go on his stream where he was like talking. We were having a discussion about capitalism. He's just like capitalism makes the best stuff, and I was like, well, no. If you can just kneecap your competition, capitalism can't do that. And it was he tried to make the argument that McDonald's was good for capitalism, and it uh. McDonald's. Oh my God, McDonald's is. You know what McDonald's is good for? Stoners. Hmm. Yes. Well, I, Very true. I would also like to point out that um, in the same line of Kropotkin, like Proudhon actually had had this huge argument about how competition inevitably inevitably leads to a singular entity, uh, a, a monopoly, so to speak, because in any form of competition, there can only be one winner. There can't mm. you can't have you know three or four different individual companies competing for the same market and ultimately ha- maintain that same level of competition eventually it drops off to zero in terms of competition or it it reaches a point where they they cohort with one another and, be- and present an oligarchy where like if, if you look at a lot of modern day um institutions you you have these you have these institutions that are talking to each other and being like well telecommunications yeah yeah they're going to be like i'm going to sit here and make make a point that sh- that i i'm going to price this thing this one way if you keep it at your price we won't have to compete with one another or even with the internet like telecommunications you know they they etch out little factions little regions of of the country where they're like we're going to have this one country and this one part of the country and we're not going to compete with you in other parts as long as you leave us alone here they're making deals you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) but and this actually i really bad segue i kind of want to talk about how this actually is antagonistic to what kropotkin is talking about the, the at least the idea of competition where it's like coming off of what he was talking about prior where, you know, because we have this ancestry of people, you know, devoting to society, we have a point like the bridges for which the which a toll was lovely in the old days have become public public property and are free to all. 
and it's kind of like this entire opposite to what capitalism offers right now, where it's like, if I build a bridge, I'm just going to continue to charge for it in the foreseeable future and and potentially into eternity. But he's arguing that once you build a public a public good, as soon as it's paid off and everybody's been paid for their services and and the goods that have been provided, it it effectively has a zero value. That's a one big thing in capitalism. You got this bizarre fucking scenario where you make something and you put X amount of effort into it. So, you know, supposedly as in a if we're gonna be pro market here and you know, markets are inevitable, just like Thanos. Um, <laughs> there, you know, you're going to, should get your money's worth off it and, you know, maybe even a tidy profit. I can see the argument for that. But you get this weird situation where you put a little effort into one thing and then leave it alone and it's supposed to be infinitely profitable? What? Yeah, it's like, um, uh, it's like the whole ANCAP idea of what do you do if there's roads? And, like, Kropotkin just completely destroys that in, in this book. Like, we were talking about uh, earlier, um, Gek, when you were saying about quoting that passage, it was just like, I was just thinking, oh, man, I could just hear the screaming of ANCAPs in the background. Just Do they all about... sound like Rasa? <laughs> oh, yes. Our good old good old punching bag Rasa, who I feel like he he's a he's a friend of the show now. Honestly, yeah, we should have him on the show just to. Oh Jesus Christ! I think he has also. I think he has us all blocked, so I don't think that's going to be a possibility. That's a shame because like we hate him, but we also love him. He tried to have uh, Cardin assassinated or something. No, it was it it wasn't Cardin. It was um, it was Jazzy. Oh yeah. He didn't ha- he didn't try to have me assassinated. I'm crushed. <laughs> oh yeah. He was just like because we were getting super mad at him because he was saying things like, you know, well, uh Algeria or, or no 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 no, it was it was Libya. And he was like, well, you know, Libya was like it's just their culture the reason why they're poor. And I was just like, that's in- incredibly racist. He's like, no, it's it's not. And he's just it's being- not their culture. It's the fact that they recently updated their privacy policy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Turns out, in the new privacy policy, you can own slaves. Woo! <laughs> but um, yeah, and like, I I think. I think the biggest thing that we need to highlight is that the difference between at least the the communi- the anarcho-communism that Kropotkin is presenting and the current form or even the anarcho quote unquote form of uh, capitalism is that in in, com- in anarcho-communism or at least the form that Kropotkin is presenting is that it's things exist and if you need it just go ahead and use it. So you don't have after it's been paid off. There's no reason to continue to pay for you know the use of that of the the museum or the library or the school or the meals because everybody's been paid for it. There's no re- or at least everybody's been provided for to produce those things. Whereas in capitalism, it's like like we mentioned before, this infinite rate of profit that I'm just going to keep profiting off the same thing no matter how long it goes and no matter whether or not my my investment has been returned or not. Well, it's exactly, the ANCAPs always talk about, you know, 
how you need to have a state to have communism, but you need to have a state to have capitalism because, again... Because who's going to enforce your infinite profit machine? Yeah, who's going to enforce your property rights and all this stuff? Because otherwise, the thing is that it, under capitalism, basically under anarcho-capitalism, what they're offering is, um, I think we said this last podcast, but it's it's the corporations become the state. That's basically all that happens. The corporations take over the role of the state and they do whatever they want. Well, and that's that's a big thing is like in capitalism, one the one thing our best friend, we love you, um, won't admit is money is power. And yes. if you have unregulated money, you have unregulated power. Money is power. Money is speech. Hey, well, at least yeah. in capitalism, yeah. And the, the, another big point is that even even in a non non stated and even in a stated capitalism, you know, we have all these capitalists that are worshiping the free market, but they they often forget that if you if you impose the free market directly onto a a firm or a corporation in internally it falls apart i mean look at sears i'm actually referencing another mm-hmm. podcast um that talked about this uh, and general intellect unit you know just kind of shout out to uh those guys they're they're fucking amazing and this is kind of yeah, can we just shout out every single podcast that's more popular than us so we can I, uh, <laughs> I like the cis are getting out of hand they're fucking great but but anyways like clout shark fox this the the the, the point i'm sorry what <laughs> the, the point is, is that we have, even in a quote-unquote free market capitalism, we have in these corporations tiny um, command economies. Because if you have a full mar- a full individual, a full market based solely on the individual, not necessarily saying an individualist market, but a market based on the individual as a unit, you have infinite competition throughout and within the corporation. So you'll have independent you'll have independent departments competing against each other and crumbling the corporation to the ground. Whereas if you have you know like an, an Amazon kind of kind of deal in capitalism, you you have a you have a command economy about what goes where, um, how much we need to buy, how much that you need to sell, and that's how it functions. It's just command economies fighting against each other. So in a, it's, it's working for the common good. Like like he talks about later, a little bit later, just so we can move on a little bit. But he talks about kind of um, if I'm my my boat is sinking, and I go to the lifeboat, I don't like ask what the toll is, or like I don't grab my credit card and say, uh, oh how much, sir, lifeboat. No, you get to the lifeboat and you just use it, and then afterwards, whatever happens happens. Or if you have to pay for it afterwards, sure, whatever. But like it's the idea of. There's command the command economies within corporations seek to have the goal of having the corporate basically they support instead of like a command economy where everyone supports everyone else. It's weird. It's, In a corporation, you don't have to pay for the light bulbs either. You just have to prove that you're richer than the other guy. Yeah, well exactly. It's you have in a corporation, you're working together to basically make a billionaire rich but in 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 the communist anarchist society you're working together for the good of everyone rather than just the good of the rich person and you get a little bit you get some bones you get some scraps yeah but capitalists can't seem to perceive of working for the good of everyone without you know putting everyone in rags like they they literally cannot perceive of someone acting not on an impulse of greed 
Yeah, it's it's this really dumb naturalistic explanation where it's like, oh, it's it's human nature to be um, to have competition. Well, that's and, you know, uh, if we're on desert island economics, then yes, you've got a point. But you know, I mean, we're it's not. not. Like everything in human nature is great. Like human nature is, if I hear someone has uh, like murdered one of my friends, and I I'm like, oh man, I'm pissed. I'm going to go out and kill them. And I do that, and it turns out he actually didn't murder my friend. That's not a good thing, even though I'm following human nature. Well, it's kind of like that Liam Neeson deal. Like, you know, I understand where he's coming from. He's definitely, uh, that's a wrong impulse to follow, but it's a human thing, and it happened. At least he fucking admits it. I, I, it's, almost, it's almost like we have to sort of transcend human nature in that sense. Well, I, I kind of also want to point well, out you. that the, the, even the discussion of human nature is kind of antagonistic to what Kapotkin is talking about, mostly because in his, in his book Mutual Aid, he, he is pretty much saying that, you know, humans are both by nature, not even saying human nature, but looking at the, the evidence for evolution, there is no human nature to be greedy. Because if you, if everybody was focused solely on just themselves, the society would collapse. Um, and even if in, in the same vein, if everybody was focused solely on what was best for the community and not for themselves, the individual would die. It's a balancing act. Yeah. Yeah, like, it's, it's not an absolute, because only, only a cis deals an absolute. <laughs> and, yeah. So I just oh had to God. throw that joke in there. No, yeah, I saw that in the chat earlier, and I was like, "Make, make the joke, make the joke." Yeah, you're, kinda, we're welcome. So, kind of, kind of moving on. Um, yeah, he he talks in part two of chapter chapter three about how, you know, if we observe the present development of civilized nations, we see most unmistakably a movement ever more and more marked, tending to limit the sphere of action of government and allow more and more liberty to the individual. And this is kind of where he's coming from the same vein of, well, communism is inevitable. inevitable. He's also saying that anarchy is inevitable. Because, com- because even going back to the first, because communism leads directly to anarchy and anarchy to communism, if one is inevitable, then they both are. That's actually one thing I gotta like about um, ANCOMs, because even they, like, they'll at least admit that they like the idea of communism, or not communism, well, actually, yeah, communism, but also anarchism. It's like, nobody wants somebody else telling them what the fuck to do. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's just something everyone has in common, and we can get along on that. So, the natural conclusion to that is that if your boss tells you what's something to do, just kill him. <laughs> oh, that's a great... At- Wait, I'm my boss. Oh, shit. <laughs> kill yourself! Oh! My, my brain, my brain is telling my heart to do something. Therefore, uh, I should kill my kill my brain. That's a hierarchy. All That's right. a weird uh, thing. Is the heart has its own. Um... <laughs> it's a weird thing because um, the heart actually does have its own um, sort of nervous system. So the heart actually will beat after the brain is fucking dead. Wait, are we are we coming? Are we becoming a medical podcast now? Are we just now authoritarian yeah. med- medical doctors? No, just the heart is actually anarchist. Getting back to furries, you see, we're going to talk about uh, genitals and the genitals. Oh, okay, of okay. Animals. Oh dear, I don't want to talk about. <laughs> okay, genitals. we're getting too furry here. But so coming back, some coming back to the source material. Um, he actually even says uh, after that that things are more arranged more easily and more satisfactorily without the intervention of a state. 
in studying the progress made in this direction, we led to conclude that the tendency of the human race is to reduce government interference to zero. In fact, to abolish the state, the personification of injustice, oppression, and monopoly. I hate that game. That game is so boring. I, I feel like uh, you could attribute that quote to, like, Rand Paul, and people would eat it up. Yeah. Yeah. So Rand Paul said that. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. Um, Rand Paul said that to uh, us. Um, we'd like them to come onto this podcast, but, you know, busy schedules. Well, I would, I would, I would also like to point out, like the the increasingly, just kind of as a side note, the increasing amount of memes being used by right wingers and boomers, misattributing like Marx and um, other uh, leftist thinkers' quotes to like Reagan or uh, Nixon or things like that, and it's just like, are you kidding me? Seize the memes. Seize the memes. <laughs> Seize the memes. Seize the memes of production. Yeah. All I'm saying is I can't wait to see a meme of uh, Reagan just saying, all we have to lose is our chain. <laughs> JFK, not a, don't ask what you can do for your country, but ask how you can lose your chains. <laughs> I forgot that that was a Marx quote. It's like the most well-known Marx quote. I thought the most well-known Marx quote was seize the memes. <laughs> well, that too. Yeah. I, I thought it was workers of the world unite. Yeah, that was that was it too. <laughs> I thought it was, I want pictures, pictures of Spider-Man. Look, Mark's only said, like, three things, so that's, that's all we Well, hold on, hold on. He said one more thing. Don't forget. You know, socialism is when the government does stuff. The more stuff the government uh, does, the more socialism it is. The more socialist it is, uh, yep. Yeah. All right, boys, we're a centrist podcast. <laughs> we're, we're moving all over the place. But, we're, so, soon we'll be in Nazareth. Y'all boys. Well, well so, so, coming off, oh, so coming off talking about dicks, let's talk about Balzac already. Wait, hold up. When we were talking about dicks, I missed that. <laughs> so, so Balzac already remarked how millions of peasants, oh, spend, Balzac, spend, pe- peasants spend their whole lives without knowing anything about the state, save the heavy taxes they are compelled to pay. Every, milli- every day, millions of transactions are made without government intervention, and the greatest of them, those of commerce and of the exchange, are carried in- on in such a way that the government could not be appealed to if one of the contacting parties had the intention of not fulfilling his agreement. Free market, anybody? Exactly. Yeah. Like he has a lot of like like those like free market ideas, which I think are interesting and like non coercion. But like the issue is that they've been co opted by um, coercious. Well, yeah, people people who 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 really truly don't understand it. Like you can see the idea of like classical liberalism and kind (laughs) of how that how um, that sort of bleeds into more of the libertarian idea and kind of is corrupted in that sense you, you can also see how it leads to this so it's like a diverging path yeah and i i think this also like even points out because he, he even talks about earlier in the chapter we kind of gla- we kind of really even glossed over it we kind of skipped over it about how you know even marxist uh economics was based on ricardo and adam smith you know the two biggest names in capitalist theory um, even pre-capitalism, at least in terms of naming naming the game, and he takes this and is basically is basically saying that even in communism, even in full communism, even in full anarcho-communism, there is still some level of interaction that can be attributed to what would traditionally be called a market. Exactly. Markets are fine. That's the thing. It's like when people say capitalism is inevitable. They're conflating capitalism with literally every market, and that's just like, 
Nah, though. And I think that's like, a, nah. I think that's one of my favorite. I couldn't have said it more elegantly. <laughs> I think that's, Wait, what? I think that's one of my four more favorite, um, more favorite points that I like to bring up against any kind of capitalist or anarcho-capitalist. And it's like, markets aren't solely capitalist. They existed for millennia before capitalism existed, and they mil- exist for a millennia after. You know, capitalism is a very distinct feature of our modern society. And to say that capitalism is just trading things, you are just reducing the entire argument so much that ultimately you have – your argument is, well, if I wanted to give somebody something and they wanted to give me money in return, checkmate communists. I mean well, the, way, you know the way anarcho-capitalists think also is they don't recognize that anything is ever actually produced. They, think, they act like things are just exchanged into existence. Well, <laughs> that's all, that's also true. But I was gonna say also just like um, it's make, like making the argument. Did you know that actually, merc- if you anything having to do with markets is actually mercantilism, and uh, so therefore mercantilism is inevitable, and you must give up all your sugar to the state, to the cor- crown. And this is why I'm uh, gathering the infinity gems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's just let's just go. I mean, I mean, who would you who would you sacrifice for the soul stone? I'm sorry, didn't catch all that. You were cutting out something fierce. Oh, who who would you sacrifice for the soul stone? Oh, oh no, wait, I, to... I was like Rasa. Oh wait, someone I like. <laughs> but Rasa's Rasa? our best friend. What are you talking about? Yeah, no, Rasa's our friend. We love Rasa. But please don't sue us. <laughs> we'll, give you, we'll give you five Bitcoin to not sue us. Oh Jesus, I don't <laughs> have that kind of money. Of money. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was like heart. <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's like real, real hours. All I have to say about um, Adam Smith is, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what his persona would be. What is Adam Smith's persona? It would Who be an apple. Who the fuck is Adam Smith? Who the fuck's Adam Smith? I, yeah, I said that. Get out. Get you are you are officially cast out from this podcast. You are the weakest link. Thank you. <laughs> Adam Smith, more like Jonathan Swift, am I right? Ooh, but yeah, I, I kind of do want to. I kind of do want to. Uh, sorry, he hasn't blocked me. I kind of do want to cycle back to what uh, Zulikath said about you know, anarcho-communists kind of they they ex- they expect things to just be traded into existence. There is no production, and I can actually see this in Kropotkin's writings mostly because like when he's talking about at least the public goods, he's like, well, they already exist, so let's just use them. But there comes a point where even bridges and roads fall into fall into disarray. So ultimately, we might end up having to put more labor into it. So, what? How do you, how do you attribute the the extra labor beyond just people, you know, going out and being like being super anarchist and being like, hey, let's just fill the potholes because we got a problem here. I mean, that would be pretty fucking direct. It'd be better than having Pizza Hut and Pornhub do it. Yeah. <laughs> this pothole this pod sponsored by Pornhub. <laughs> you know, at least Pornhub doesn't put their fucking logo on the potholes they fill. Yeah. And it's- I would also like to see, so continuing from, from, just to kind of round out the chapter, you know, the, that idea of things are just exchanged into existence, he kind of talks about... At the end, a free society regaining possession of the common inheritance must seek in free groups and free federations of groups a new organization in harmony with the new economic phase of history. So in the, he kind of doesn't really talk, at least these two chapters, about what the next economic phase is besides wa- kind of hand-waving towards communism. So like, 
I, I'm kind of hoping that you know, in the later chapters, he kind of talks about well, what do what what's going to happen when capitalism is fully dismantled? What's going to happen when we achieve anarcho-communism, and how are the markets? How are how is the economy going to look? Yeah, it's almost like Marx's interpretation of history, where this is also another thing I have a problem with some of the 19th century authors. They have a very linear understanding of history, where history is is more fluid like especially with um you know kind of the men going back to russia the mensheviks they really had this idea of well first we go from a agrarian society and then we go to capitalism and then we go to socialism and you have to it's accelerationism essentially where you have to push things to the limit and then you have to go from this stage in history to this stage but history is much more fluid than that and a lot more complex than that idea and you can actually regress from the idea that history is always a march forward in progress is just simply not true. Like it's not strictly serious. linear. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, it's linear. Capitalism it's linear. doesn't always have to be fucking puberty. Well, I, I, exactly. I kind of, I kind of disagree in that interpretation of Marx because even though I don't like Marx to to the extent that a lot of people tend to, he his his idea of historical dialectics was material dialectics for historics. It was not, oh, well, we have these periods. He was more like, so we have a current phase, we have a phase, we have a movement that goes against that phase, and then the phase after that is a synthesis. So bringing in, bringing Hegel in, the dialectics is the thesis, antithesis, synthesis, where you have like an idea of- It's not of, a phase, mom, I'm a real capitalist. <laughs> I, I was, I think I was more talking about the interpretation by, um, Russian, like, like more of the Marxist, not even Marxist-Leninist, but really, like, the uh, kind of almost Trotsky-esque, Trotsky-esque, like, idea of um, how Marx, how in, interpreting Marx and that kind of thing, Fair. where it's like, that, that's a very Russian idea, and that sort of led to authoritarian communism in, in the Soviet Union. So, and so... That's the that's sort of where I was coming from from that, but I see your point. Okay, well, and, and but, and I I think actually just to kind of start chapter four out, I think this is a good segue because even a lot of times we discuss about reappropriation in terms of communism to kind of level the playing field. I think is a lot of people tend to think that we have to use the state to reappropriate, and even. Even Kropotkin says something like, what we want is not a redistribution of overcoats, although it must be said that even in such a case, the shivering folk will see an advantage of it, nor do we want to divide the wealth up of the Rothschilds. What we do want is to arrange things that every human being born into the world shall be assured the opportunity, in the first instance, of learning some useful application and becoming skilled in it, and next he shall be free to work at his trade without asking leave of master or owner, and without handling, handing over the landlord or capitalist the lion's share of what he produces." And this kind of goes against that authoritarian th system of reappropriation, where he's not saying, well, let's take all of the money from everybody else and just give it to everybody who needs it. No, we, we're, we're kind of okay with, you know, people having things and having money. We just think that the system that currently exists is not, um, it's not democratic enough. And it's not giving a, people enough opportunity to, develop their skills and work where they want. And that's going back to, you know, chapter one and two, where he's like, well, we have these factories that are just lying dormant and people need these goods. Exactly. It was almost like, um, I also want to want to point out that in this chapter, Kropotkin is confirmed to be a Rothschild, uh, shill. 
just uh, Illuminati confirmed. Like, I, just kind of like going off of that, like the Rothschild thing. Like, that kind of took me for a loop because I was I always think of it in like the the um, you know modern definition of like conspiratorial, like Illuminati, like crazy person talk. But like back then, like the Rothschilds were just a bunch of rich people. Mm-hmm. So, like, I was thinking about that, and I was like, man, is there going to be, like, in a 100 years, like, a Bezos conspiracy where people are calling people, like, Jeff Bezos because they have tons of money? Or, like, saying that, like, the Jews were actually funded by Jeff Bezos well, or something? Well, hold on. Hold on. Don't forget to make a shout-out to, you know, the person that's funding this entire thing, George Soros. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I just got my Soros bucks in the mail. It was a little a little tight this month, Georgie. I've been, uh, I've, I've been working hard. I've been working hard. Yeah, gotta, Honestly, gotta, sma- was, gotta smash surprised. all those Starbucks windows, you know? Yeah, I've been making, I've been spreading around tons of homosexual porn, just tons of it, and just corrupting everyone, and he hasn't given me my due. <laughs> well, fuck? Well, this is, this, is why, this is why we have no gods, no masters, because we, we need to overthrow George Soros. We need to overthrow George Soros so we could actually get the money that we're owed by George Soros. Exactly. We we put in the labor to produce this propaganda. We should get all the value from it. But uh, <laughs> I, I I'm actually with you on this con because like it, it do it did kind of throw me in through a loop about you know the Rothschilds and how he kind of was defending them, but he even says well, he's you know, trying to understand them. He he even says you know so far so good, Sarah critics, but you will have Rothschilds coming in from outside. How are you to prevent a person from amassing millions in China and then settling again amongst you? And he's kind of he's kind of pointing out this this age old anti anarchist you know thought. Well, what what are you going to do about people who just don't want to work in your system? Huh? 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 Well, then kick them out. What about all the neats and the welfare queens? Yeah, right. You know, it was actually the welfare queens. uh, The Kulaks were the first welfare queens. I just wanted to put that out there. Okay. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> therefore, the Kulaks, you know, they kind of they kind of had it coming. They were welfare queens, you know. All right, we we are now we are now a we are now a tanky podcast. Um, all hail Stalin! He didn't commit genocide. There was no okay, there was no real death talk toll. With Stalin, in, no, he was nothing happened sexy. in Hungary. Uh, don't worry about it. Uh, but like, if you look at Stalin when he was like in his twenties, he was a fucking snack. And I, I do want to. I would fuck Stalin. <laughs> I do want to. I do want to make like a. a <laughs> All right, that's that's gonna be the episode title. I would episode two. I would fuck Stalin. <laughs> he was a snack. <laughs> I, I do. Stalin was thick. I do also want to point out this really funny quote. This really <laughs> funny part about in that same quote. Um, well, well, then, are you going to establish custom houses on your frontiers to search all who enter your country and then confiscate the money they bring with them? Anarchist policemen firing on travelers would, would be a fine spectacle. And I just want to point out the oxymoron of anarchist policemen. Just right there. I think that was like, the, ju- well, the point in that. Like, that was the gag. But also, I was like, okay, congratulations. You took a bunch of wealth from this country and you brought their money into the anarchist society. And it's like, I will buy stuff for this money in this anarchist society and we're just looking at this guy like what the fuck do you think you're gonna do with that shit exactly it's like a post-scarcity society it's like it's like almost like star trek in that sense yeah i have dollars what do we do what do we do with those it's like yeah we don't we don't need money we already have all the stuff like what 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 are you doing with dollars the best you can do is roll blunt 
<laughs> I actually, so coming off of this, I actually do want to point out, there is an anarchist, there's actually a really active anarchist community, I think it's called Twin Oaks, uh, or is it Twin Trees or something? I keep thinking of Twin Peaks, but that's not right. Yeah, no, I think it's Twin Trees. No, never mind. I, I, I can't remember. It's, it's something to do with trees, and basically what they have is they, it's a small, it's a small community that has basically abolished money. But they still they still interact with the outside capitalist realm, and they're not necessarily anarchists, but they're more like they're more uh, socialists than most commu- most communities in modern day are. You know, beyond Cuba, stand for Cuba, let's go. Um, but they they don't have they have like a, they don't have a really an internal uh, monetary system, but they do still function by imports and exports and still, you know, maintain the currency of the outside world and interacting with the outside world. Well, yeah, it, it's it, if once you live in a post-scarcity society and that the only things that are markets are things that are luxuries, then you really don't care about uh you're not going your your whole economy is not going to collapse because you have all the basic means that you already have and you're not going to be overpaying or underpaying for anything that you basically need which is like food water shelter that sort of thing and that's i think what like in in my view of anarchism is is like you can keep a lot of some of these like luxury markets and like things like um that you don't need to survive but so long as like as people have what they need and uh have like a purpose in life then generally you're just going to be pretty good you don't need capitalism for that you shouldn't commodify everything that's why i especially hate the modern day neoliberalism is because that is the antithesis of it commodifies everything it commodifies human life it commodifies um just everything is a market and everything can be bought and sold and everything has a profit margin oh and that's what i hate about it yeah like and like 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 this is like this is like like Kropotkin can be rolling in his grave if he saw what like neoliberalism and globalization has done. Oh, well, honestly, we could harness the rolling into his grave as like an energy source right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and like neoliberalism has actually brought up the has actually brought to the current capitalist economy the get the gig economy. The fact that you know I'm just going to work you know this one job that's going to give me you know I- I- income every so often, and it's not going to be a stable source of income. And that's like that's like peak neoliberalism because you know to them it's like the greatest thing ever that you know people don't that corporations don't have to pay you know benefits or even a stable income. It's just well, you make them a profit, they'll make you a profit. Let's go. Exactly, it's trickle down economics and like Reaganomics and that sort of thing. But I actually I have an interesting take on this with um, just regarding almost the furry community. Because, like, in normal neoliberal uh, thought, there's really not a whole lot of room for art because art is not seen as something – you can't make a whole lot of profit off it. You you put work into it and, yeah, you know, but how are you going to sell that to people other than, like, you know, you, you m- might put it in the store. But if – there's no really room for art as, like, a critique of reality and a critique of society. It's more seen as this is a product that I make. How can I sell this rather than, well – it's helping us view the world, and there's no that value is lost. And I think that one of the things I like about the furry community almost is that we treat our artists actually very, very well. And there's they, I mean, 
there is almost like a capitalist mi- microcosm within the community where it's like, oh, you know, commissions are cost a lot and art costs a lot and yada, yada, yada. But it's almost like we're supporting each other because in normal, like, neoliberal society, there's no room for these people who want to just express themselves and exp- hone their talent. And they want to do what they want. But in neoliberalism, it's, all right, good, get a nine-to-five job, work your way up, um... It's positivism as well. Uh, it's the idea that anything that isn't STEM is automatically wrong and you're not doing things to progress humanity. So therefore, you're not making profit for people. So therefore, you are worthless. And so arts students and art pe- or more artsy people are excluded. And that's kind of why we have this furry enclave is because of that exclusion. It brings people together. It almost brings people together. It's like we almost have our own commune, if you will. Yeah, and, it, and it's almost like in, in the book, to kind of bring it back to the source material, it's almost like Kropotkin had, uh, had actually anticipated the resurgence of liberalism because he's even talking about how, you know, the, the, secret, of wealth, the secret of wealth is finding the starving and destitute, paying them half a crown. And they make them produce five shillings worth in the day. You know, five shillings is a full crown, so you're paying them half of what they make you. And that's how you amass the fortune, by, you know, increasing it through speculation made with some help for the state. So you're, you're sitting here, you're finding, you know, the people who are the most desperate to make it make it income, which is where the gig economy comes in. You're finding these people that are the most desperate, and you're saying, hey, you know, I'll, I'll give you enough to barely survive if you just make me a shit ton of profit. And exactly. they'll do that if they're desperate enough. Like, people who are backed far enough into a corner will take literally any deal you offer them, and it might even look good to them, but it's it's definitely inequality of bargaining power. It, you see, it's, it's, you know, you guys are just against the free uh, enterprise of people. They agreed to their job if they don't like it. They can just get a new job. Agreement in the a contract made in the context of uh, if a contract is the product of aggression, even if it's not aggression by the person that you're contracting with, that's still enough in my mind to at least impeach the contract, if not completely get rid of it. Oh yeah, and in, in, in contract law, it, the contract like 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 in the law, like we have this on like the books, and this has been known for years, like. It's fairly null and void. Like if you're coerced into doing something, if I ha- if I put a gun to your head and then said, "Hey, write me a check of her twenty million dollars," and you do it, and then you take me to court, I wouldn't be like it was under his own volition because he could have said no, and I, you know, he yeah, could have said no. Like again, our laws don't seem to recognize the coercion that does happen under capitalism. You know, today yeah, it's systemic. It's systemic instead of just being an individual. The same person that you're contracting with. So, at, at the systemic level, you don't really get that defense anymore. And it, it kind of comes back to this idea of a generation of oligarchy in capitalism when faced with competition. Because when it comes to worker wages, like if the if the powers that be, the the larger corporations decide, well, across the board, we're going to pay you know the workers X amount of dollars, then going to another corporation isn't going to change anything because you're going to get paid the same. Because it'll be like, well, that's that's just the market value of what what the work is right now. So, and the, but it's, and the worst it's part is it can be a completely value. unconscious agreement. They don't even have to be talking to each other to come to this agreement. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's a race to the bottom where you just have to make the most profit. And like even then, like when people talk about how you know capitalism is all about creativity and has the most stuff. Well, a if capitalism was about creativity, 
they would honor artists more. Like, yeah. that just doesn't make any sense. And B, if capitalism... Yeah, no, they see an artist and they say, get a real job. Exactly. And B, if capitalism is about creativity, then why are, like, some of the people who are paid the most literally just speculators who are just using other people's money to, like, gamble? I, it's actually really funny. I kind of I kind of want to point out that Ayn Rand, you know, the, the prophet of capitalism, even in her book, Atlas Shrugged, the entire book's premise is, oh, well, all the artists and everybody who was, was creative just, like... We didn't feel valued, so we're just going to leave. Bye. And they all just dipped out. And the the resulting society is just a, a crass dystopia. Oh, man. Did you actually read all of Atlas Shrugged? <laughs> no, I couldn't get through half oh. of it. Are you kidding me? I was going to be yeah. like, you poor, poor boy. <laughs> I got halfway no. through it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, think, I think anybody with half a brain can only get like halfway through most of Ayn, Rain, Ayn Rand's work without, Rand. you know... Fearing uh, the Br- didn't the they make board. a movie? Yeah, they did. Well, they like, keep they keep promoting. Goddamn, YouTube keeps promoting it to me to watch fucking Ayn Rand videos, and I'm like, no, I don't want to watch Ayn Rand go off. I mean, I watched about the first some random bullshit. The first movie, and it was at least pretty true to the book as far as movie adaptations of books go. So, if you don't want to read a thousand, is there riff tracks book- of that? Hmm. Is there like a riff tracks or MST3K of? Uh, oh, I would so Atlas watch Shrugged. That. Oh, I would watch that, that. I don't know. We we need to do that on our first. If we ever do like a a um, yeah, we can do a movie based one after this. Yeah. Like uh, fuck yes, Conquest of Trains. Oh man, yeah, man, pir- pirating Ayn Rand is uh, the ultimate uh, anarchist move. Yeah, honestly, is this Praxis? <laughs> <laughs> and and kind of coming back. Well, to- I don't know. Is there a broken window? Because <laughs> if not, then it then no, it ain't. I, I kind of want to come back to this. Like shit. you know, he even. Kropotkin even said, you know, nowadays uh, a merchant who has some who has some capital need not stir from his desk to become wealthy. He telegraphs it to an agent to telling him to buy a hundred tons of tea, freights freights it in a ship, and in a few weeks and three months of its sailing ship, the vessel brings him his cargo. He does not take the, even the risks, risks of the voyage for his tea and his vessel vessel are insured. And it's kind of like the pinnacle of neoliberalism slash capitalism of how, you know, I don't have to do the work to make money. I just have to pay somebody else to do the work for me. I, yeah, it's it's the idea of like transport, and like like he talks about this in here. Like I think he makes a very interesting point where it's like people then say, "Oh, you know, it costs money to transport stuff, and it's kind of hard to like track across all these areas." But at the money same time, the people labor. that make the most money off of it are not the ones actually transporting. Like the ship captain. Like if that was the case, then the ship captains and like people who are out at sea who are transporting all this stuff. Yeah, they make a decent amount of money, but they would make all of the money. But the reality is the people who are making the most money are the people who are just calling the shots. Yeah. And just organizing things. Everywhere and like everywhere you and will calling find calling the shots the, is a generous way to put it. Yeah. Although everywhere you will find they, they the have power, the wealthy, but they're not doers. Everywhere you will find that the wealth of the wealthy springs from the poverty of the poor. This is what we mean when we talk of expropriation, which is the title of this chapter, expropriation. This will be our duty during the revolution, for whose coming we will look, not two hundred years hence, but soon very soon and this is one of the things like uh i kind of have a problem with as well is like always trying to predict the future in in a lot of certainties and like talking about the revolution being soon it kind of reminds me of almost um the christian idea of you know the resurrection will be soon we're coming soon so we have to prepare for it we have to do things for it rather than i think it almost builds a place of complacency wherein um, you almost have to say, look, the revolution happens when the people will it. You have to go out there and 
get people to say we are going to have a revolution this is what what, do you agree with me let's do it you have to get people on board also you know did did that revolution last it lasted till the 90s ish i would say it lasted basically until the 80s ish and even then you can talk about it's not really an anarchist revolution and it's not really achieving full communism as well so there's that um caveat like, it doesn't have to be, you know, specifically, I guess, for you, uh, revolution, but it'd be good enough to, you know, make the world better than when we came in, right? Yeah, well, that's that's kind of humanism, and that's why I like, um, that's why I like about uh, Kropotkin. He's very humanistic and very, um, even though, like like I said, I think with um, kind of my criticism of Kropotkin and Marx, they focus a lot on kind of, Europe, but that's where they they were grown up in. That's where their cultural milieu kind of they were steeped in that cultural milieu. So um, for them to talk about like another part, other parts of the world like Asia or um, uh, South America or like any other uh, system where the economic systems capitalism does have an effect, but it's um, slightly different, and it, those perspectives are needed. But it's kind of they're talking about it from the European perspective, which is kind of overrepresented a lot, I believe. Yeah, well, and I also do want to point out that, you know, it was 1917 when the revolution was, and Kropotkin is a Russian, and he fought in the revolution of 1917, so he was backing that. And I think that's mostly because, like, his idea of communism was like, well, it leads to anarchy, so if we have a communist revolution, even if it goes through the state, we're going to slow, the state will slowly wither away. And this kind of, this is... A, uh, a, a cementation of what Marx was saying about how, well, you know, the the way that we go through to communism is by using the state, and because we have the class consciousness being revered, and we have, you know, the establishment of a class of society, slowly the state will wither away without without class. Okay, so it's sense. basically, you get your communist revolution, and then you just sit on it until anarchism takes a hold, because, you know... If you, buy, if you buy one communism, you get one anarchism free. Yeah, and, and I'm kind of... Well, the I'm, weird thing is, like, treating something like it's inevitable. Like, in any case, everybody has said that their philosophy of how things are going to go is inevitable. Yeah, and, the, the end of history, and Fukuyama was like, liberalism's great, we did all this stuff. Then 2008 comes, and it just fucks everything. And I actually yeah, At least we had Halo 3 in 2007, so... Oh, yeah. I kind of want to make a side note here, that, like... Even the if we if we move forward in history a little bit, the post-Marxists and even like the twentieth-century philosophers or the late twentieth-century philosophers had this idea that well, we can't just assume that things are going to happen because we have a cultural hegemony that we have to fight against. We have to sit there and actually perform some kind of cultural revolution, either on a macro or micro scale, to have people accept the fact that revolution is necessary, or accept the fact that anarchy is inevitable, or accept the fact that communism is inevitable. Because if they're sitting here like neoliberals are and assuming that capitalism is just the natural state of things, then it will be the natural state of things. That's so other thing is like things will change the only reason we actually need revolution is because there are people in power who are invested in making things not change things are the way they like yeah 
people with a monopoly on force have a vested interest in making things stay the way they are because it works specifically for them. Mm-hmm. It's and then they'll extract. They'll, they'll try to extrapolate it and say then it works for all of society because they have no empathy. Yeah, fuck you, got mine. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's essentially it, and they'll fight to keep it the same way and. You know, when a revolution becomes necessary, or when they put down a revolution, they'll say, see, this was inevitable because this is the right way. And I, I think kind of, I think Kropotkin kind of walks back on this idea of inevitability, because he even says later on, all is interdependent in a civilized society. It is impossible to reform any one thing without altering the whole. Therefore, on the day that a nation will strike at private property, under any one of its forms, territorial or industrial, it will be a lot obliged to attack them all. The very success yeah, no, of a revolution will impose it. Like, failure to do it on the whole would, you know, result in going back to a... I lost my train of thought. Sorry, my daughter's <laughs> having fun here. No, that's fine. Fun is great. So, so, some of us have to be having fun, right? Those leftists are indoctrinating the children. How dare you, sir? I'm calling CPS. <laughs> uh, talking about Karl Marx in front of my beautiful, beautiful child. Can your, can your daughter be a host on the podcast? What, is, what does Honestly, she have to say about anarchism? I think she says, I really don't care as long as I get fed. <laughs> Which actually is a good point, because a lot of people, to kind of attack the cultural hegemony, that's one of the big things that people kind of have an issue with, at least conceptualizing the, the future of this, the anarchist, the communist society, is they have these um, misconceptions, or at least uh, predispositions towards what that would mean. Because you, you know you have the modern you have the modern definitions of socialism and com- communism saying well what about the bread lines and oh I'm not gonna have my fucking iPhone Jesus I mean, what am I gonna do without my iPhone and you kind of have to like sit down and that's one of the goals of this podcast sit down and be like listen you're not gonna be losing your iPhone and you're gonna be able to eat as long as it's as long as you sit here and you function appropriately. It's like and, you're gonna and, and do the guy that less the work and we're all able to eat we got food. Yeah. Yeah. That's all capitalism we did not make capitalism didn't make shit. Labor did. Mm-hmm. We we live it we we currently are in just a world of prosperity. I don't know what these what these dang socialists are talking about. I'm sitting here in this McDonald's and I see people typing on their MacBooks and you know order getting their food as fast as possible. That's just that's capitalism at work, you know. Socialism Define can't have that. Food. I mean, you're sitting in a McDonald's talking about food. I'm not quite sure what's going on here. <laughs> People always talk about how the Soviet Union didn't have food, but can we realize that, you know, is 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 processed food and just like Burger King and McDonald's and Taco Bell, is that really food? Like, That's again, it works if you're high. It works really great if you're high. <laughs> <laughs> but... That reminds me, last podcast, I think I had to take out a part of you just hitting a sick rip on the bong just right into the Oh mic. no, you edited out the bong rip? I don't know if I... Well, I, I haven't edited it fully, but I was thinking about it. I just remember hearing that, and I was like, I'm probably going to have to edit that out. <laughs> yeah, no, I just... I was wondering about that. I was like, that's that might not work in that. Should I... Because we were asking about it um, before the before we started recording. I was like, should I do the bong rip before, or should I add that as flavor? Yeah. All right, so kind of... Uh, let's get to the end of this chapter, and... Um... We're kind of we're kind of on the last page, you know, because yeah, yeah, it, it, it's funny because we actually naturally led to food, and the next chapter is food, and he kind of kind of leads into this in the end of the chapter, going about how 
you know, the, the same, the same argument about, you know, how the popular common sense has got the better of this subtle distinction. We are not savages who can live in the woods without other shelter from the branches. The civilized man needs a roof, a room, and a hearth, and a bed. Um, it is the place where the ner- nerves and sinew gather strength for the work of the morrow. The rest of the workman is the daily repairing of the machine. And he's talking about how, you know, in these in these economies, we we talk we point to Soviet Union about bread lines, but we have bread lines in capitalism. Uh, or, oh yeah, we we have you know people going people starving in capitalism. We have the weird thing is how there there is a distinction though between how um, employers treat the living machines in their companies, i.e. the workers and the literal machines, and and this is just going off experience though. They treat the literal machines so much better than they treat the living machines. Well, let's ch- let's inject some Deleuze again. All people are machines. Everything is a machine. Ah! That is actually my kink, so... Whoa. So what you're saying is that the robot uprising actually has already happened? Yeah. Um, there us. is a robot uprising the happening, robot if you know what I mean. Well, just to kind of just just for for the for the for the listeners who don't know Deleuze's argument, he was basically saying that everything that exists is just a machine seeking connections with other machines. But um, also, what the fuck is a hearth? Uh, it's like a fireplace. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I've never heard the phrase "hearth" used in a goddamn sentence until hearthstone? now. Hearthstone? You never heard of Hearthstone? Another product of capitalism, you see. I thought you that was just a video stone? game. Yeah, capital. You you want to give up Magic: The Gathering? You know all of those thousands of dollars you invested into your deck to play once a month. You know it's really weird because despite being on hormones for like four years, I have not spent more than fifteen bucks on Magic: The Gathering. <laughs> well, we're gonna, we're gonna change that here. Uh, this you ain't playing Magic: The Gathering and supporting Wizards of the Coast as our capitalist overlords. Uh, then what are you doing? We we are now we are now state-sanctioned capitalist podcast. Welcome to our podcast. Yeah, I just wanted to um, just to kind of finish things off. Just uh, we kind of had a discussion. I got my thoughts on like. What do you think um, the furry community has to do with anarchism? What do you think it has to do with sort of just furries and politics in general? Just what are your thoughts on it? It's a bit disturbing. I want to say the furry community is pretty anarchist in and of itself. But there's also this... There's a hierarchy of popularity in the furry community. Well, let's also forget about circles and closed species that exist. Oh, uh, yeah, sir. Um, well, look, here's the thing about tr- circles. I like cheese. I'm a Minnesotan. <laughs> I like cheese. <laughs> My next fursona is going to be a circle made out of cheese, and it's going to be the walking contradiction. So literally every circle, then. Yeah, right. Yep. But, but let's be real. Kaisuros are way cooler than circles anyways. I, I wouldn't... Protogens are bay. I mean, I, mean, I wouldn't call it a buttons. hierarchy. I wouldn't call it a hierarchy of popularity, because even in... Even in a truly anarchist society, there is still late. There are still latent systems of power that need to be addressed. Because if every interaction was a one-on-one interaction, if someone's being bullied, then you can't have someone step in and be like, "Hey, dude, you, you gotta fucking stop doing that. It's not cool." Well, if you didn't have anarchy, if you were in anarchy, why don't you have laws and uh, people would just kill each other? Yeah. You mean? God, I hate that. If it's anarchy, Although- you mean I can kill you? You want me to kill you, right? That's what you want, right? And here's the fun thing: the, the, the hierarchy to that is you say yes of and I die. <laughs> if there's a hierarchy of um, 
like popularity, like I said previously, there is still a counter argument to that, and that's that you know, remember when Jason Effects decided to shit the bed and did not expect everyone to you know say hey fuck off? Yeah, I think like that popularity things... does not guarantee you will get away with everything. Well, that one of the things with the community is we've gotten a lot better about policing ourselves, um, like. The furry community ten years ago was much more abundant with like um, the recent a lot of the recent zoophile stuff and like hero stuff like that would never have happened ten years ago. People are much more um, because like the problem is that we're a bunch of misfits and we're used to being treated intolerantly. So automatically we circle the wagons whenever one of our our in group, if you will, going into. Saeed territory and the otherization of people, but uh, whenever someone in our in-group is threatened, we sort of circle the wagons and defend them, no matter how heinous their crimes. But now we're starting to see that, okay, we can't do that because it gives the community a bad name. We have to police ourselves and protect ourselves because that's ultimately what it's about. Well, it's not even just that. It's just also there we're a bunch of misfits, and there are people in our community who will treat other people in our community like shit because they're a different kind of misfit than they are well it's it's that and also like predatory people in the community who take advantage of the fact that we the fear community is very very open and very, we're vulnerable very, yeah it's it's a lot of vulnerable people trying to come to terms with themselves is really what all it is well and you also like the whole what, what's been going on recently like you wouldn't see that 10 years ago because also we we still didn't have as a furry community 10 years ago have the um, the media presence that we do today. Like, I mean, I remember, I remember when the first when the first news article broke about, oh, this is a furry, and what does that mean? And thinking, holy crap, we're actually being represented in the media. People actually know who we are, and now, and now even. But now we're circling the wagons against that because then we realize, oh shit, capitalism is coming. Uh, better double down on the weird fetishes, guys. Yeah. Well, that's a th- that's that's the best part about Furrydom is like all the weird niche fetishes that people like and support. Um, consensual fetishes. I think one of, one of the biggest things that people get mixed up is like when we talk about like zoophiles. Zoophiles uh, should not. I I believe like zoophiles are the most fucked up, but also most vanilla thing you could possibly get out of furries, and that's why we're trying to get them out of furries. Exactly, because because they're not they're not furries. It's about consent. Animals cannot consent. And also, let's be real, as far as furries go, Vore is vanilla. Vore is pretty vanilla. I mean, there's, like, weird stuff, but, like, people, like, I, under- I understand the argument some to, to a certain extent where it's like, oh, you know, you don't want to have people just try to do too extreme things in order to hurt themselves. But it's all about, you know, if it's not hurting anyone and it's not, like, a public health risk or anything... Then I think it should be perfectly fine. Can we actually can we actually have like a very brief discussion about how, um, as the furry community continues on and develops more and more weird fetishes, we actually stray away from actual sexual action and start fetish- fetishizing things that aren't sexual in nature. Well, it's the idea of a f- everyone does this foot fetishes. That's actually a weird thing with the foot fetishing in furries, because that went from a fetish to just being a thing, because everybody likes... The beans are precious, whether you're getting off them or not. Well, I, I wouldn't even necessarily say foot, a foot fetish is asexual, because I actually had... I actually got into a discussion with somebody that was arguing that the the feet are actually the closest things to the genital 
the generals beyond you know the genitals themselves. So it naturally it naturally follows that it, what if about you're, the legs? if you're on your knees, you know, sucking sucking at a big ass monster docky dick, then you're going to naturally associate your feet with your genitals. Yeah, I don't yeah, I don't knees. understand that at all. I, I'm I, sorry. I'm one of those I people who doesn't have knees. a foot fetish, and I I've like. I had this discussion with someone who was like, I would like to get a foot fetish just to know what I'm missing out on. And the answer to that was like, if you don't already have one, then you're not going to have one. I'm sorry. <laughs> I wish I, that was like, like people saying, I wish I could become gay or I wish I could, you know, I wish I was trans. Oh, my. Yeah, no, there's a meme on that. My, it's like that dysphoria. I actually so, found it when I first started getting into the community, community. I actually had, knew somebody who lamented that he wasn't gay because there are so many gay people in the community that he felt so alone. And I'm just like, you know. Have you tried fucking one of the gay people? Wait. It might help. Yeah, right? Like. <laughs> And I guess I guess we need to kind of wrap up the wrap up this podcast because we're starting to run a little long, but just kind of like a closing note, like the, the I do want to make a, a, a remark about how the sexualization of identity has become a thing. Like a couple couple centuries ago, you know, having sex with people of the same gender or same sex was not a thing. Like you were still straight if you fucked a dude, uh, ain't no big deal. Actually, a couple centuries ago, well. It, the the it whole sexuality, the yeah, sexuality has gone through some ups and downs in history, but yeah, I think I think the point is like we're seeing like a, a uh, an acceptance of the idea of gender being more fluid and sexuality being more fluid and these things not being stuck in stone and the human mind being really fucking weird and like not- the modern conception of gender and sexuality is different exactly. from the exactly. lifelong lifelong. Uh, history long conception well that, because, that's why that's why the furry community is like generally a very young community 20s to 30s because like the zoo the boomer sort of timeline well a you know furries really didn't exist back then but even if they did i think uh only disney reason- well, they just disney couldn't make effective communities back then they did they did have some but they didn't have as much traction my point is is that there is more it was much more fixed in their gender roles. Like even in the hippie movement, um, they still had fairly strong gender roles in that movement. And yeah, so, honestly, someone like Julia Serrano today would look at the hippies of last generation and think they were regressive. Exactly. A lot of people make that argument. I've heard like, people make that argument. I've made that argument. Hmm. So I'm you make that argument. Right. I agree. <laughs> so let's let's go ahead. Oh shit! I'm right. Oh fuck. <laughs> let's go ahead and make make our closing remarks about. So how how did we feel about these two chapters? Like, what would we? What was the general idea that we pulled from it? Do we want to make? Do we want to kind of like make any comments about what we read and how it may tie into the current modern system? Kropotkin is a circle. Hmm. Did you make that? I mean. Uh, he talks about, well, the next chapter he talks about food and, uh... Okay, so I, next he, chapter is all about Vor. Um, <laughs> obviously, as a small shark and fox, I'm clearly recording from the stomach of, uh, Zucaleth here. That's just how it works. Uh, but, um, so any closing remarks about these last two chapters? You know, how we felt about it? Well, how we kind it's, of- it's weird how he predicted, basically, how corporations would treat their employers but also like like, it's happening back then it's still happening today yeah 
like the big difference is i i guess the human machine is infinitely replaceable unlike the uh mechanical unlike the uh sexy machine that is exactly the opposite of reality well yeah but that's how they treat it yeah you're not wrong well, it, like I, I get it. The the mechanical machines are sexier, but so we just need to make make machines that fucking reproduce. Well, I I do want to point out that like it wasn't a prediction. It was more like what we see today is not is not different in kind from what was occurring during Marx's and Kropotkin's time. It's just different in severity. Like back then, in scale. Yeah, like back then, you would make you would you would produce a pair of shoes that cost a crown and get paid five shit cost a crown and you get paid half a crown for it. Whereas today, you'd you'd make a pair of shoes that cost ninety bucks, you get paid five bucks for it. Yeah, that's yeah. It's weird because again, everything that's happening today has happened in their time and and or was predicted by them. But again, it just they didn't think it would be as bad as it is, and it it be like that. Like honestly, if Marx saw what the world is today, we would literally have Communist Manifesto 2. Well, and I, I think that's because, like, but when they were, in the time of their writing, they kind of assumed that we would no longer be in capitalism by this point. Because, like, even back in the 60s and 70s, we were reaching a point of critical mass in terms of starvation wages and uh, pro- profit gains from by the capitalists. That they would have predicted that people would be just be fed up with it, whereas nowadays, with the propaganda through neoliberalism and even neoconservatism, we we are seeing that these people become increasingly okay with it. Well, I think it's the thing is, is like neoliberalism ultimately has failed because people are still fed up with the system, and it was supposed to be the alternative to communism, the alternative to socialism, where it's like you like guys like liberty, right? You guys like you know doing stuff. Well, we'll give you that, but uh, um, you know, don't question capitalism. Other than well, there's that, also you know, the Red Scare is like a huge factor in that. Is like any form of socialism or communism was like totally demonized like to the point where the you know you had ordinary oh oh god she's drinking that um that's not a that's not a glass or bottle um (laughs) are you watching porn no i'm what well sort of it's just someone sort of but he's drinking the bong water oh but so (laughs) I, I guess, I guess, finally, Mark, is that neoliberalism presented capitalism with a new face, but it didn't. It didn't solve the problems. It just exacerbated them, right? It put a band-aid on. Yeah, it. and people have responded to the propaganda of neoliberalism with, "Oh, well, that's just the way things are." I guess, and you're right. It came a lot from the Red Scare, but I think that's mostly because you know, Mark. You know, quoting Marx, you know, when the socialism was the state does stuff, and the more the state does, the more socialister it is. And ironically, in that sense, the state did a lot of stuff to stop socialism or communism. Mm-hmm. You know, just a little thonk emoji there. <laughs> just big thonk. Yeah, seriously. But anyways, right. so um, subscribe, like us on YouTube, give us a, give us money on our Patreon, whatever we decide to we do. We have a Patreon. I, oh, I, don't, I haven't set it up yet, but uh, oh. uh, feel free to give me just, you know, uh, even though we want all for all, uh, we're, we're going to be capitalists about this podcast and we're going to... Uh, Unfortunately, we have to play the game. Yeah. Hey, if you see us on the street, really give, you goes. know, hand us a fiver and say big thanks. 
Big thanks for the, or, the gay furry scene, guys. You know, I also take uh, money in, in the form of blowjob. Just <laughs> throwing that out there. Like, if, if you um, see me on the street and just... Uh, we're talking about feet, you know? You see my feet? I'll see your feet and, you know... Yeah, yeah if, you, if, you, if you like this podcast, give me uh, Eschadah Mutual foot like, jobs a lot for of it. What is with... I still don't understand. God damn it, I wish I had a foot fetish. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, that's gonna end it. Yep. That's that's it. So thank you guys. Got a little sexier than I expected. <laughs>